Matthew chapter 9, second half today. We started chapter 9 last week, and some of the things we saw, and and really, we're going to see this several times in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew does a great job of recording kind of the facts of things. There are certain elements that he leaves out, so it's good to, to check the other Gospels to get like a bigger picture. And I'm going to reference to a few of the other Gospels today to, to give us a better idea of what's going on. But one of the things that Matthew points out, uh, and we see it a lot here in chapter 9, is that he shows how fast these events are taking place with Jesus. That it isn't like he healed the paralytic guy that was let down through the ceiling, and then he took a break, had a few days off, and and then something else took place, you know, and then he's dealing with, you know, another event. It's that these things are happening one day after the next, or one, in one day, one event after the next. And we get an idea that these times were crazy for Jesus. He makes a point of saying, and then as this person was leaving, another person arrived. And as this person was going, this person showed up. And, and I think we forget that sometimes. That, well, I don't think Jesus was ever in a hurry. We got to remember that he was very busy because of the people and because of the great need that the people had. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 9, we saw that uh, these friends bring uh, a paralytic man, let him down through a ceiling, uh, through a hole in the ceiling, very disruptive. And Jesus, you, to me, the way I picture it, and, and I think there's some of the things that were given that give us this picture, the, the guy that's being let down isn't real stoked on it. Uh, that Jesus points out it's the faith of his friends that is, is pointed to. And when the guy's let down, he tells him, son, be of good cheer, which tells me he was not of good cheer <laughs> when he was there. But I think Jesus loved it. That is, is he's like, man, this is great. Look at the faith of your friends. And, and you know what? Your sins are forgiven. And when he says that, people would have freaked out that, that Jesus would say your sins are forgiven. Now, again, only because he was the Messiah was it all right. If anyone else had had said it, it would have been blasphemy. And that's what the religious leaders think. And they're thinking it to themselves. They're not saying it out loud. And Jesus talks and speaks to them about it and basically says, look, it's just as easy for me to say your sins are forgiven as it is to say rise and walk. But that you will know that the Son of Man has power and authority And he turns to him and says, take up your bed and walk. Go home. And again, this was was a testimony to them. This was letting them know, this is who I am. I've got the power and the authority to heal and to forgive sin. They're both easy for me. Right? They're not a trial. It's not a struggle. He has all authority to do those things. And it was to show the religious leaders that he has that Authority. Now, they've been following him, and they're going to continue to follow him through chapter 9, that they're keeping up wherever Jesus goes and kind of, I know, I just picture them with their little notepads out, making, you know, I don't like what he said about that, you know, or whatever they're doing, right? It's not in a positive way that they're following him. Um, and then we see the calling of Matthew. And I think the calling of Matthew, though it's very brief, in a lot of ways, is, is like the most perfect example of the Lord calling all of us. That Matthew was the outcast. Matthew was the one that nobody wanted around. 
And, and Jesus just walks by and goes, Matthew, follow me. And he goes, okay. And then it's like that quick. There's not a huge explanation. Matthew doesn't go, and then I thought, and it made me feel there's none of that. It's just like, and, and so Matthew followed, right? But what we see immediately after that is that Matthew then invites all of his outcast friends. And that's the part that just gets me every time I think about it. Here's Matthew completely on the outside of the Jewish culture, still on the outside of the Roman culture. He wouldn't have been accepted in any, either place. But all of those that are also outcasts like him, he's like, you've got to meet Jesus. And he brings them there for a dinner. And, and we read that and we celebrate. And we're like, yes, you know, the outcasts are welcome at the same table as the Lord. You know, very fitting for the idea of communion. But the religious leaders see this. And again, the idea is that there was a big group. There was big enough that it was not just in Matthew's house, that it probably spilled out into a covered area, could be viewed from outside. And they see all this, and they're offended. And they ask the disciples, why does your master eat and drink with sinners? And Jesus says that he has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It would be more in our language that he is saying, I'm not come to call the self-righteous. Those that don't believe they need to be healed. Those that don't believe they need to be forgiven. There's no reason to call them because they don't think they need a savior. I've come for the sick and the broken. And we see that he continues. And we're going to see a lot of the Lord's heart, just this great compassion that he has as we continue on through the rest of the chapter um, and again, we'll look at some of the other things because there's a lot going on here. Uh, the other Gospels tell us that there was a large crowd following him at, the, at this point everywhere he went. Um, and these events are not only happening one after the other, they're starting to overlap. And uh, so let's pray and we'll finish off chapter 9. Lord God, we are so thankful that we get to gather together and study your word. Lord, in the midst of this pandemic and, and all these things, Lord, we're just grateful to be together as a family. Even those that can't be here and are watching online, Lord, we're just so glad that we have the freedom and the ability to, to study together. We pray that you'd speak to us and that you'd change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we're going to be starting in verse 14, chapter 9. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the new patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins will break, and the wine will be spilled, and the wineskin will be ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and then both are preserved. John the Baptist's followers come to Jesus. And to me, this is, again, I think I, I just picture a lot of things in a very humorous way. Um, because their question is, it's not any kind of conflict. It's not any kind of, uh, they're not even, you know, really accusing the disciples or Jesus of anything. They're just like, we don't get this, right? Why, why 
are we fasting? And even the Pharisees fast, but you guys aren't. <laughs> and, and I think part of it, first of all, we need uh, to understand that it was very common. In fact, the Pharisees, they would fast anywhere from two to three times a week. And Jesus addressed that type of fasting. Not to say that every single Pharisee did it in a, in a self-righteous way, but that was the more common situation. That they fasted not so much to please the Lord, but to be seen by men as being very spiritual, right? And then it becomes a competition with one another. Oh, you fast once a week? That's great. I fast twice a week. Oh, did I say once? I meant three times. I actually fast three times a week, right? And so it becomes this competition. Now, that wasn't the case with uh, John's disciples, uh, but they have a very different ministry than Jesus, Right? We know that John the Baptist, um, his calling was to prepare the way for Jesus. And that he was about calling Israel to repentance and to come to a place of humility. Right? And not just Israel, but those even attached, like Herod and, and people that were like on the fringe of Israel, that he would go to them and preach righteousness to them and repentance to them. And that didn't change when Jesus came on the scene. I think sometimes we forget about John the Baptist a little bit, that when Jesus comes on the scene and, and John says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, like that John just retired at that point. But he didn't. John kept going. John's ministry remained the same. And it was a very intense ministry. It had a lot to do with humbling themselves and praying and fasting and seeking the Lord in repentance for their own sins personally and for the sins of all Israel. So it's a very intense type of ministry that, that John had. Jesus uh, had a very different ministry than John. Again, it's important we understand that Jesus understood all the things that John was doing to a much greater degree than John did. He understood the hold that sin had on mankind. He understood the need for humility and repentance. And he had come for the purpose of salvation. So those things weren't foreign to Jesus in any way. We've seen times of his fasting for 40 days at the beginning of the gospel. We've seen times that he has been in prayer. And we'll see more of those as we get, uh, especially at the Garden of Gethsemane. So he also had an intensity to his ministry. But I think there was something very different about how Jesus was in public and with other people. Because while John and his disciples are kind of avoiding the crowds and avoiding the, the main cities, Jesus is going to feasts. <laughs> He's going to weddings. He's going to a dinner at Matthew's house. And, and I don't believe, in fact, there's, there's a lot to say that he was not there with his arms folded Grumpy being a killjoy. How dare you people have fun? Don't you realize how horrible the world is? I've known people like that. They don't get invited to a lot of parties, right? You know what that person's going to be like when they show up and, and just look down their nose at everything. Jesus, on the other hand, is invited to lots of parties and feasts. Sinners love to be around Jesus. And I believe it's because his love and his joy flowed through him. Now again, I'm kind of picturing this scene here as 
They've just finished up the dinner at Matthew's, and like across the street are John's disciples. Maybe were, they were fasting that night. And there's Jesus' disciples like, what's up, boys? Cheers, you know, <laughs> having a meal and laughing. And these guys are over there like, why are we fasting again? How come we're not following Jesus? <laughs> they seem to be having a pretty good time, right? And so they ask, and again, it's not a conflict. It's not like they're trying to start a fight or even that they're questioning, you know, if Jesus is doing things right. But they're just like, we don't get this. And Jesus' answer in verse 15 is, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The disciples of Jesus were walking with the Messiah. They were being taught personally by him. They were seeing the very character and the love of God, and it was not a time to mourn. It was a time to rejoice. It was a time to celebrate, right? But Jesus also tells them that the time is coming. The day is going to come when, of mourning. There will be a time of fasting. That when, when the bridegroom's taken away, yeah, there's going to be a, a, a deep sorrow, and he's not just talking about fasting from food, right? It's that, man, there's going to be three days of fasting that these guys enter into because they think that Jesus is dead. Jesus also lets John's disciples, and again, it's the crowd that's around him. So this isn't just to John's disciples, but everybody there, that what he's doing is something new. And I, and I want to be careful about how we define that because there are... Unfortunately, too many groups out there now, they go, oh, we've got some new thing, some new truth, some new spin, some extra biblical theology, which is always dangerous. Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus isn't going, hey, I've got something new you've, you've never even, you won't even find it in the Bible. Everything that Jesus is doing is supported and backed up in the word and pointed to by prophecy. But the idea is that this is completely unexpected. And, and what he's doing, it's not just about feasts, it's not just about parties and, and being around other people, it's, it's this new covenant that is on the way. And those things which are old and rigid will not be able to handle it. And I, I, he's not dismissing John's disciples here. He's not saying, guys, this isn't for you. It's really kind of a warning to everyone going, look, you're going to have to be flexible. You're going to have to be willing to be molded by the Holy Spirit to understand these things. That those things which are rigid, they're not going to be able to handle it. Now, again, He's not just pointing to people individually. I believe that's true. But I think even more so, he's pointing to the old covenant itself. That Jesus hasn't come to somehow patch together Judaism. He hasn't come to somehow refurbish or remodel the old covenant or build upon it. He's come to bring a new covenant completely. The, new, the old covenant set the way. It set the path. It prepared the people. It prepared even us. But the new covenant is 
It's new. It's different. And it's not about trying to patch together the old ways, the old formula, and somehow make it look new. And I think this is good, and this is a good reminder that even within the New Covenant, even for Christians and Christian movements, you can look back in church history, and, and we, we become pretty inflexible. It, and it's interesting. If you look, you go back really from the time of the disciples forward, and you see the same pattern over and over again, where there's a group of people that are just in love with Jesus and in love with his word, and, and God uses them and starts a movement, and people get saved, and, and, and it's this great, beautiful thing. But then, those people get a little comfortable. And they get a little rigid in their ways and in their traditions. So God raises up a new generation to do the exact same thing again. Again, it's not something new. They're not bringing some new truth that's never been heard. They're going back to the truth of the Word of God and just a simple love for Jesus. And then that group will grow and usually become like a denomination, and then they get comfortable, and then that denomination kind of goes by the wayside, and he raises up another group, right? It's just how he does it. Because, not because he doesn't want to use the same people, it's just that we have a tendency to be very inflexible. We get comfortable, right? And there's always the, that you know, older group, not necessarily an older generation, because it can be young people with old ideas that are just like, no, that's not how we do it. That's why it's so important that rather than having a allegiance to a a church group or denomination, our allegiance is to Jesus and his word, right? And that that our leading is is by the Holy Spirit, who will never contradict his word, who will never do something that's not seen in his word, but he will keep us in fresh step with him to be effective for the kingdom, right? And that's what we want. We don't want to be going back. You know, we don't want to be that old wineskin. And those are good pictures. I love Jesus' pictures. Because the idea is you've got something inflexible, this old piece of cloth, and you've got a new piece of cloth sewn into it. What happens when you wash it? Well, the, old, the new one shrinks, and it pulls away. With wine, if you pour new wine in, and it was even more true back then because they had all kinds of crazy stuff that they put in to make wine, that the gases expand. And the wineskin has to be able to expand with it. If it doesn't, it will burst, both are ruined. And so Jesus, again, isn't dismissing anybody. He's not saying, well, the old generation can't be used. That's not it at all. It's just that we all have to remain flexible. Let the Holy Spirit do his work in us, keeping our hearts soft. Lord, what do you want to do today? I love what the Lord has done in the past. I love looking at church history and looking at the revivals. You know, uh, because of my connection to Calvary Chapel, I love all the stories of Chuck Smith and the hippies and the, the Jesus movement and all that stuff. I love it. But that was yesterday. I want to know what the Lord wants to do today. All right? It might be connected. It might have similarities, so we don't ever want to dismiss the past. But man, we need to be careful of not going, well, that's how it was done back then. No. What's the Lord doing today? That's what we want to know, right? Keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. All right, verse 18. It says, while he took these things, excuse me, while he spoke these things, 
to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay her hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman, who had a flow of blood for twelve years, came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she had said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, for your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that very hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. And he said to them, Make room for Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. Now again, the other Gospels tell us that at this point, and really for a while now, this massive group is traveling with Jesus. Not just like a crowded road that they're going down. The idea is they're all pressing against Jesus. Like just moving is difficult. And he's trying to make his way when this ruler and this woman are a part of that crowd. And the ruler comes and uh, the other gospels tell us that this is Jairus, ruler of the synagogue uh, in that area. And the rulers of the synagogues, they weren't, kind of, they weren't on that level of like the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees, but they still tended to be people that had power and some amount of influence and money, right? They weren't filthy rich, but they weren't poor either. But whatever he had, it was not enough. Whatever influence, whatever ability he had, because when tragedy strikes... We become powerless, especially without the Lord. And here this guy, whatever strength, whatever influence, it doesn't matter, it's gone. And really his situation seems absolutely hopeless. I read a commentary that was talking about this, and, and it was interesting because they compared Jairus to uh, the centurion, going, well, the centurion said, hey, just speak the word, and I know that my servant will, will be fine. And this, he didn't have, Jairus didn't have as much faith because he said, well, Jesus, you have to come and touch my daughter. And I'm thinking, no, this guy is at the bottom, the most hopeless state he could possibly be in an absolute blind panic because his, his daughter didn't just, she isn't just sick, she's gone. And according to everyone else, it's too late. But yet he has enough faith to come and fall down before Jesus and just beg him to lay his hand on his daughter. To me, that's an insane amount of faith. Crazy amount of faith. And so Jesus is like, yeah, let's go. You know, again, I, I like that because Jesus could have went, I'll just speak the word. He could have said it, hey, your daughter's fine, go home, right? He could have healed her, but he wanted to be there. He wanted to be connected to Jairus and his family and be there with his daughter. And again, I think it just shows the, the personal way that Jesus works. Now, as they're on the way, this woman sneaks up from behind Jesus. And that's exactly what she's doing. This isn't just like casually like, yeah, I'm just going to walk by. She is sneaking. She does not want to be seen. She doesn't want to be known. Her 
hope is that if she could just touch the, the hem of his robe, and it's probably referring to the, the tassels that would have been on, on his robe or even his prayer shawl that he would have, could have been wearing. Um, and her idea is like a hit-and-run healing. That she does not want anyone to know that she's there. And that might seem odd to us if we don't understand the context, but according to Jewish law, because of her situation of bleeding, she is unclean. And she has been for 12 years, which means she couldn't touch anyone without making them unclean. She couldn't be touched by anyone without being unclean. We don't know if she was married or had kids or what her situation was, but she's gone 12 years without touching a person. And so her hope is, and this is why she wanted to touch his robe instead of Jesus, right? Because she considers herself completely unclean. And how terrified she must have been when Jesus stops the crowd, right? Now, the other Gospels, again, kind of give us more detail that as they're walking, Jesus goes, wait, who touched me? And the other disciples, you got to be kidding me. Look at this crowd and everybody's pressing in. And you would ask, who touched me? He's like, no, somebody touched me. Well, of course, Jesus knew exactly who had touched him. So why did he want to bring attention to the whole situation? Again, the woman was healed. Because he wanted the crowd to see her faith. And because he wanted her to know she wasn't stealing anything. She wasn't stealing a blessing or a healing, that he knew her. And again, the fact that he starts, he speaks to her and says, woman be, or daughter, be of good cheer, tells us that she was not. (laughs) She was probably panicked and couldn't get away from the crowd, right? She touches him. She's like, she maybe felt the healing. We don't really know. And Jesus goes, wait, who was that? And she's like, ah, you know, try. And he just goes, hey, it's okay. It's okay. And calls her daughter, again, which is a very endearing term. It's not something that you would have said lightly. Um, Again, I just think it shows the great beautiful and compassion that Jesus has, not only on her, but on all of us. Jesus goes on from there, goes to the leader's house, to Jairus' house, Verse 23 says that when Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. Um, Now, no doubt, some of the people that were there were friends and family and were generally grieving over what took place. But there was an interesting thing that was very common, not just with rich families, but really any family that could possibly afford it, was that they would hire mourners. And that seems very odd to us. But... When there had been a death in the home, they would bring in these professional mourners that would play music, whether it was flutes or, you know, stringed instruments, whatever, very sad songs, and they would make a lot of noise. And it was a way of letting the neighbors know that someone had died. And it was also a way of letting people know that were coming to the house and were unsure, that as you came to the door, you'd hear the commotion and go, someone died, right? Maybe you knew that someone was sick, you were going to check on them. If you heard all that commotion, you knew They were gone, right? And so that's the noisy crowd that's being referred to here and all of the wailing. And we get the idea that it was also a pretty good-sized group uh, because Jesus isn't able to make his way 
to where the girl is at. He has to tell them, make room. Get out of my way. <laughs> I love that. Actually, this whole situation that Jesus does here, I think is just beautiful because uh, he tells them that she's not dead, that she's only sleeping, which is, again, isn't, it isn't that Jesus said she's in a coma or you just think she's dead, but I know better. She was dead. They knew that she was dead. What Jesus is saying is that it's just as easy for him to wake her up from death as sleep. This is pointing to his ability. This is a testimony to that crowd, to that group, to Jairus and his, his wife, to go, I'm going to wake her up. Right? And so they begin to ridicule him and, because they know. And, and again, I think in our society, we don't, we don't have a grip on death that they do, even in the like, third world countries today, uh, death is very common. It, it's, it's something that you grow up with. If family members die and, and the body is in the house. And, and we've, we've really sanitized death in, a, in our society. And, uh, and so for them, this was something that they were familiar with. They weren't afraid of it necessarily. They weren't shocked by it. It was just something that they knew, and they knew when a person was gone. And so they begin to ridicule and mock Jesus. And this is the part that I just think is fantastic, is that he doesn't explain anything to them. He doesn't go in and go, well, guys, let me explain to you. First of all, I'm the Messiah. Nice to meet you. And I have all power and authority, and I can bring her right back. And you don't need to, you know, nothing. He just puts them out. And why I I think that's important is because no, no matter what God has called us to, we have a calling from him on our lives, right? Whether that's uh, maybe it's in ministry or it's in our family or it's in our neighborhood, workplace, there is a calling. And, and when we choose to walk in that calling, there are going to be people that ridicule us for it. Jesus knows why he's there. He knows what he's going to do. He, he has everything in mind and And instead of debating anything with them, he just puts them out. And I believe we need to do the same thing. To anyone who would mock, because their opinion doesn't change our calling. They don't get a vote in it. And we need to be sure of who we are in Christ, what we're called to do. And again, not in an arrogant way, not in some way that's trying to pick a fight. But when I'm called to do something by the Lord, whether it's with my family or how I raise my kids, or in church, or whatever. I'm going to do it with confidence, not in myself, but in who the Lord is. And when people mock and when people ridicule, I'm just going to put them out. I don't have time for them. Because they don't get a say in what my calling is. In the same way, Jesus just puts these guys out and gets right back to why he is there. You know, and it's such, such a simple thing. The other Gospels, you know, would say that he, he calls her little girl or, or daughter again and, and uh, takes her by the hand and, sh- and she just lifts her up. She just, she's healed. Mark, I think it's the gospel, Mark makes a funny little note that Jesus says, and give her some food. <laughs> you know, just like, again, he didn't have to do that, but he's like, hey, yeah, you know, she's been resurrected from the dead. She's probably hungry. It's funny to me. I don't know why. Now he tells them, don't say anything about this. <laughs> and of course, they do. They go out everywhere and tell 
everybody, and he can't blame them, right? But it was just as easy for him to wake her up, right? It's, there's no hassle here. He's not praying for hours and hours. He just takes her by the hand, and she's back. I love it. Again, showing his power and his authority. And verse 27 goes on. It says, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. And as they, were, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion for them because they were, they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. And he said to the disciples, harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, this account of the two blind men, again, just the way I picture it, it there, there's a f- humor to it. I don't think it was necessarily funny at the time, but it's just not what you expect Jesus to do. He, he's leaving Jairus' house, and it says that he entered a house or entered the house. Could be Peter's. So he's traveled a ways, and it just says that these two blind men are calling out to him, crying out to him, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus doesn't stop for them. Now, again, he's with the crowd, and maybe they were over there, and like, well, I can't quite get to them. But either way, he could have like said, Peter, go get those guys, lead them back, or John, help them. He doesn't. He makes his way all the way back to the house, and they have to follow. Again, they're blind. That's not easy. So they're having to like figure out where Jesus went, whether that was trailing the crowd or whatever. And Jesus just goes inside the house and waits for him. It doesn't seem like the normal thing that Jesus would do. But for whatever reason, they, uh, they follow, they find him. And the things that they're saying are right, right? They call him the son of David, which is a, a reference to the Messiah. So they're proclaiming that he's the Messiah. They're asking for mercy. That's the right thing to ask for. But when they make it, Jesus simply asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord. And again, there's a simplicity to it. And he's not challenging their faith. In fact, I think that's maybe the reason he had them follow, is that they were a testimony to everyone else. They could have just, they followed. Everybody followed. They had no problems. And these two blind men made their way extra effort 
And it was their faith. And Jesus points to their faith, saying it's according to their faith that they are healed. And their eyes are opened. And then Jesus again sternly warns them, saying, see that no one knows it. They didn't just tell a few people. It says they told everyone in the whole country. (laughs) And again, you can't blame them. Like, you're not going to bump into people on the street, and they're like, whoa, you can see. Yeah, I'd rather not talk about it. <laughs> You'd be like, yeah, man, Jesus touched me. And, and so you got two people going out telling this whole story. And, and it's funny because Jesus keeps telling people, hey, just don't say anything about it, all right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then everybody goes. Uh, now, again, the religious leaders are, are following Jesus. They're seeing all of these things. They're seeing all that he's done, even in this one day. Chapter 9 is one day. And man's brought to him, is mute, demon-possessed. Jesus casts the demon out. The guy can speak. And, and instead of rejoicing, now the majority of the people there rejoice, but the religious leaders in verse 34 say he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. They're saying the only reason that an evil demon is listening to Jesus is because he's more evil. What a horrible accusation that is. The people that should have been looking for the Messiah are now saying that he is demon-possessed with a greater demon. That's why he has authority. They just refuse to believe it's even possible that they are wrong. They are so sure that they're right, that Jesus is wrong. He's not the Messiah they wanted. Even though they've witnessed all of these miracles, they've witnessed all of these things, they see people rejoicing and glorifying God, and they refuse. And then Matthew kind of wraps up this section of of giving us detail um, of all the things that Jesus has done. And, And he gives us some real general things, that he went around to all the towns, preaching the good news, and in the synagogues, and healing, and all of this stuff. Um, but verse 36, I love. Again, I think it's such great insight into the character of Jesus himself. It says, but when he saw the multitudes, and I don't think it's just the, this, at one point Jesus sees the multitudes. I think this happened every time he saw the multitudes. Every time he saw a group of people, that there was this type of compassion. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Man, the Lord looks on us with this compassion. He looks on the lost still with this compassion. And I think that's so good for us to remember because, again, I know I've I've touched on this several times in the last few weeks. We are living in such times of division right now that every single thing, it doesn't matter what it is. It can be politically, socially. It could be the music you listen to. Everything is a them and us. Is it, are they on our side or their side? And we need to be the people who remember that no matter what you think the other side is, Jesus looks upon that side with compassion. That he looks upon them as sheep without a shepherd. They are scattered and lost and broken, and they are exactly who he came for. And we can't forget that. Because we can become so polarized with them and us that we forget it's actually all about him. And we need to get in line with him. Because 
he looks upon them with compassion. Just like he looked upon us with compassion. When we were scattered and wandering and weary, he looked upon us and wanted to be our shepherd. And when we came to him, then we enter into the same work that he's doing. Right? We're not just lazy sheep, but we begin to be those that, first of all, pray for the Lord to send more workers. But we should be workers ourselves, that we are going out into that harvest. And the harvest is great. I truly believe the Lord is, is going to do a work that we've never seen before. I think all of this tension and all of this division and all of these things, it's going to reach an apex where people are finally go, these are not the answers I've been looking for. And it's going to be God's people that will be in that place to go, let me tell you the answers you are looking for. That we would be those sent out into the harvest, but also praying that the Lord would send out even more laborers, that more people would get saved, that the harvest would come in. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.